Welcome to Multifamily Real Estate Investing, presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling. I'm the founder and CEO of Mara Poling, and I'm happy to be with you this week for a discussion about multifamily real estate investing and being prepared for the unknown unknown, all about option planning. Multifamily real estate can be a stabilizing force in your investment portfolio. And we all know that the future of any economy is filled with a level of uncertainty, where we might be in the economic cycle, how long that period of the cycle might uh, occur, and so on. Option planning allows us to be prepared for that unknown and then make the most of the investment we have made. That's what we're going to talk about this week. As always, if you have questions, feel free to shoot me an email, pat at marapolling.com, and please visit the Learning Center at marapolling.com for a bunch of additional educational material. We just last week, for example, held our State of the Multifamily Marketplace for 2021, and uh, very shortly we'll have that content up on the Multifamily Real Estate channel, and again, you can access all that at the Learning Center at marapolling.com, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. All right, so what do I mean when I talk about option planning? So multifamily, our thesis is, is a stable asset class to invest in. It is in that food and shelter category, and if uh, focused in the right markets and the right class, for example, we like class B, uh, you can even increase the stability beyond just the baseline stability you might see in a regular multifamily investment or any multifamily investment. And that stability serves every portfolio well. It can be improved by providing additional options, uh, the ability to vary the strategy over the course of a hold period, a potential hold period, so that when events occur in the economy and in the marketplace that are unforeseen when the acquisition is made, uh, we have options to be able to make decisions about what to do. I am quite confident, because we were certainly in this position, two years ago, nobody was planning for, all right, what are we going to do when the global pandemic hits? just wasn't part of the conversation. And so if I have acquired an asset with a singular focus and a very narrowly constrained targeted strategy, for example, a three-year hold period with short-term debt uh, to take a project that needs significant rehab and flip it, uh, if that's the focus I have brought to my acquisition, I don't have a lot of room to maneuver when things unfold in a manner different than what I had originally anticipated. We're big fans of planning for the unknown. Well, by definition, it's unknown. So I can only plan for so much of it with cash reserves and other things I really need to be in a position where I simply give myself lots of windows of opportunity to do different things. And so that's what 
we mean when we talk about option planning. Now, there's a number of factors that are involved in this, uh, really, that run throughout the entirety of the underwrite. We're not going to go into all of those uh, on this session, uh, but there's a few I want to focus on. And the first, and it's clearly one of the most significant, is debt and the structure of debt. So we advocate having a reasonable amount of leverage uh, in an asset. So whether you're investing with Mara Poling or if you're looking at other sponsors where you're doing your own uh, acquisitions and building your own portfolio, uh, there is absolutely a level of leverage that can be had that we believe has a very modest amount of risk associated with it and yet can significantly uh, improve the financial returns uh, that one experiences. Uh, what that number is is a personal preference decision. Uh, we think something in the 70% range or so for acquisition uh, leverage uh, in terms of uh, loan-to-value kinds of numbers, but ultimately in the overall 60s uh, as an overall kind of leverage, uh, that those are good places to start. And when we trend down into the 50s or even below 50, that's where there's lazy equity that could be uh, accessed and maybe have something done with. So uh, when debt is used, if debt can be structured in such a way that you have multiple options as to what to do, then that's a great way to be prepared for the uncertainty of the future. For example, we could acquire an asset with the expectation that we are going to hold it five years, which is a very reasonable expectation as the vast majority of multifamily investments we've been involved in, I won't say all of them, but every, almost every last one of them, has traded in that five-year time frame or less. So we could put five-year debt on an asset. The challenge, for example, with that is I know I have to do something at year five. Uh, and if the circumstances of the marketplace change in some manner in that time frame, then if I don't believe uh, holding that asset is, um, or selling that asset makes uh, viable sense, doing a sale exchange, and I want to hold that asset, I now have to go through the cost and uh, time consumption energy of putting new debt in place, and my depreciation methodology and a number of other factors could be, could be altered. So we generally will look to have longer-term debt, debt that might be structured over a 10 or even a 12-year time frame, still having the expectation that we are going to exit that asset in a five to maybe seven-year kind of time frame. Sometimes our plan from the beginning will be a longer hold, but generally it's not. Um, so if I have long-term debt, how can I exit at year five or year six? Um, well, one way would be through an assumption, right? So there's an assumption window that opens. Generally, if you've done a value-add investment, that window is going to open around year three or year four. So after the value-add work has been done over the first couple of years, and there's been some seasoning of the trailing 12 financials with those improvements. Uh, and then the window closes, or at least begins to narrow for an assumption, as you get closer to the end of the term. And that's because if someone purchases an asset via an assumption, and we do this with some regularity, 
then in order to get to a loan to value that might make sense for that acquisition, they would want to put some supplemental debt on it. And there are restrictions on supplemental debt that would be available the closer you get to the end of a term. So one of the reasons to have maybe a 10 or a 12-year term means that the assumption window opening in year three or year four would still be open through year five or six or maybe even the very beginning of year seven. Uh, and that gives us a pretty broad window to look at potentially selling an asset uh, and doing a sale exchange. And in today's interest rate environment, we're talking about probably having an interest rate five years from now, our current rate being less than what the rates will be five years from now. I think that's a reasonable assumption. Therefore, selling an asset as an assumption actually carries some additional benefit because of the lower cost debt that you'd be selling along with it. Now, another way you can exit an asset is to simply sell it as a cash sale. And many of you out there might be saying, well, wait a minute, Pat, you've talked before about prepayment penalties, about yield maintenance or defeasance. Aren't you going to have yield maintenance to deal with if you've got 10-year debt and you're trying to sell it at year four? And that's absolutely true. And that would be one of the reasons that an assumption might make some sense. But there are loan products available where the defeasance doesn't run the entire length of the loan term. Uh, so the 10-year term might only have seven years of yield maintenance. Or it might have a buy-down in which, uh, up front, the period has been shortened. So the exit window would open sooner. So that's clearly... Uh, another way it can be structured. Another reason to look at that longer-term debt is it may make sense to not exit the asset, to after three or four years, after the value-add work is done, to take a supplemental loan out ourselves, pull that equity out, invest it in some other activity, right? Could be something that's distributed to investors. It could be a reinvestment in that asset. Or if it, for example, was in our fund, it might be a reinvestment in uh, other assets for improvements or in the acquisition of other assets. And one of the reasons we might look to do that is not only to get the lazy equity working again, but when we do get down the road to a sale exchange, we can reduce the amount of potential boot exposure we have by taking on that supplemental debt and pulling that, uh, those dollars out. Um, this is a strategy we might use, for example, if we were to purchase an asset via an assumption uh, in, or via a, a piece of new debt, but where we went in with very modest uh, leverage, right? And we might look in that way to uh, either do a refinance or a supplemental debt in order to pull uh, the equity growth out plus maybe some of the equity we left on the table in the very uh, beginning. So all of that debt structure uh, has a lot to do with the kinds of levers we have to use as we move through the hold period of the asset. And again, compare that with I simply put five-year debt on. Now, at the end of five years, I could refinance. Uh, I could um, uh, sell the asset. I can't really do a supplemental. There's not really a window to do that. And more importantly, I have to do something, right? If it's longer-term debt, I don't have to do anything, which in and of itself is a decision. And so the more options that can be on the table, 
the higher um, uh, confidence we can have that we will be able to address issues that arise in the marketplace or even with the asset itself uh, over the uh, entirety of the hold period. Now, another thing we want to do that uh, gives us options is uh, we want to be in a position when it comes time to look at the market and exit this asset. Uh, and again, we would prefer to do so through a sale exchange through a 1031, but it could just be an outright sale. Um, we want to be in a position where we can attract as uh, large a number of qualified uh, prospective buyers as possible uh, because market caps are an interesting conversation, as we've said. Uh, sales prices are a function of uh, the number of interested buyers and what they're willing to pay uh, and the supply of uh, similar uh, deals of similar quality. Uh, and so one of the ways to do that is to execute a value-add strategy that delivers increased NOI, but does not over-improve the asset, at least initially, and validates some level of improvement that is being left for the buyer when we exit that asset. So for example, it may mean going in and implementing a program to make value-add improvements, but only going through a certain percentage of the units. Or maybe the unit improvements are done, but there's only a modest amount, maybe only a trial amount of other income items addressed. For example, maybe it's washer-dryers. Adding washer-dryer hookups is a great value-add project. It might be something that's only done on maybe 10% of the units in order to prove that out. And then that leaves that as an option for others down the road. How that fits into our option planning is this. If that's our initial plan, we then have the ability as we're rolling things out to either accelerate that work and do more or to slow the project. Uh, we've had assets where we've had plans to make fairly significant improvements and do so within a maybe a 24-month period of time. But because we've had an experience of achieving some of our financial objectives without necessarily having to make all those improvements, we actually held back. And by holding back, we not only reserved some capital, but we significantly increased the interest in the asset when it ultimately came time uh, to exit. And so the management of the value-add program gives us additional options to play with. If I bought what I would describe as a momentum asset, an asset that's already fully improved, where we're basically just going to buy it and operate it and operate it well and get my modest improvements in rent over time from just the normal growth that occurs in the marketplace. If that's what I'm purchasing, I don't have a lot of other options to play with from an operational standpoint because I, I've got a very narrowly defined plan. And the same is true if I buy a rehab. If I buy a project that needs $20,000 invested per unit, I really have to do that work. Otherwise, I'm just selling a rehab. And the whole thesis of how I can make money on a rehab project is to take it from a rehab and turn it into either a momentum-type asset or a value-add asset, the kind of asset I would buy. 
So we, Mara Polling, don't look at rehabs initially. We'll look at them after someone else has done the work on them. But if they don't really make the improvements they need to, well, then it's still a rehab project. And so if you invest in a rehab or if you invest in a momentum, your operational plan is pretty fixed. If you invest in a value-add project, well, it's already a performing asset. It can be managed more like a momentum asset, or you could be more aggressive in terms of the value-add, and that's something you can throttle up and down. So again, that provides more uh, options for us. Some of the things that we've talked about in the past, uh, this was in our eight tips to buy right uh, episodes that we did, uh, the markets that we uh, acquire assets in, that we make investments in. By investing in markets that have diversified employment bases, that have uh, healthy growth in terms of uh, population and income growth and job growth, those provide us with options to do more than if we were to purchase in a market that uh, on the surface from an economic standpoint looked very solid but maybe was overly reliant on one particular industry, uh, that might work very well, but we could be affected more by outside influences. The more stability that we have in the environment that we've invested in, that gives us more options in terms of what we want to do. And in particular, investing in markets that have growth in front of them. It's exciting to invest in a market that's in the newspaper every day because so-and-so just announced that they're breaking ground on their new headquarters. Uh, and those can be, and in many instances are, good, solid investments. But if that announcement happens to be the kind of end of the road, right, that the growth has occurred and this is the final piece of build-out of the uh, employment in, uh, infrastructure, if you will, uh, in that sub-market, then five years from now, what's the growth story about that market? So by investing in markets where the story five, seven, ten years from now is still one of positive growth activity, uh, and that will, why we don't know it, that can be um, implied, or at least the opportunity for that can be increased by looking at historically what has occurred and what the actual plans are for the community, right? Communities have their own growth plans. That gives us more options in terms of what we might want to do as opposed to locking us again into a specific time frame that we need to uh, exit um, within. So those are just some of the factors to keep in mind. Uh, if, if you take nothing away from today uh, in terms of the tactical level of content that I just shared, um, uh, please take away the, uh, the notion that the acquisition and the design of an investment uh, can be done in such a way that increases the number of options that the sponsor or investor has. And we believe that increased numbers of options, increased opportunities to manage relative to what's going on in the environment not only achieves and increases the likelihood of achieving the security and stability objectives that we think, again, are priority one, but it will improve the performance in terms of cash distributions, equity growth, uh, and even uh, tax 
performance by giving you the flexibility of being able to control when you might do a sale exchange and how you can optimize all of those uh, activities. So again, have any questions, shoot me an email, pat at marapolling.com. Don't forget to go visit uh, the Learning Center, and please join me again next week for another episode of Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Polling.